Welcome to the 37th episode of the Game Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Michael Majors. We're a couple of platinum pros, and we're just doing a mailbag this week. 37 episodes deep, and we have not had to do this. And honestly, I think that we could talk about other stuff, but this is just like a fun thing to do, I think. Yeah, just a nice little change of pace. We're doing two shows this week because I goofed it last week, so I think this is a a nice compliment to a more specific episode. Yeah, I do too. And it's it's actually kind of cool, like, the questions that people asked, because this is probably going to turn into just kind of, like, the generic, like, things that you can do to improve Ed Magic, which we have not done in a while, so it kind of helps with that too. Yeah, you were saying when we were looking over the questions, getting ready to do this, you're like, not a whole lot of personal questions, which is really interesting. It's not something that I, I noticed immediately. You know, our audience is kind of focused on a specific thing. You know, we're the spiky podcast or whatever, so we're kind of doing it. Yeah, which is great. I love it. It's it's so much better than just like, you know, what's your favorite kind of tombstone or whatever, so. Pepperoni. Duh. Is that your answer or what you think my answer is? That's yours. Oh, well, so, no, the real answer is Italian sausage, but they discontinued it. Oh, uh, okay. All right, well, you tricked me. There you go. I guess maybe those questions are interesting. Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> anyway... We'll just get into it. So, uh, first question from at AlexPlaysMTG. What is the biggest part of your game you want to improve, and what are you doing to get better at it? I think most of these I'm just going to let you go first. Okay, sure. So, for me, I would say, like, I I have an emotional attachment to the things that I find fun about Magic, which a lot of that these days comes from, like, brewing decks and trying to, quote-unquote, break it or whatever. So, oftentimes, it's, like, trying to balance that side of what makes magic fun for me and actually trying to win tournaments because obviously once i register for a tournament i really want to win yeah i I think that's a pretty important goal too it's like what what are you trying to accomplish with both just playing magic and registering for the tournaments because i think they are separate things what do you what are you doing to get better at it yes so so the like the generic answer to this question is like you know make better decisions or whatever so you know it's just trying to like hold myself in check a lot of that when it comes to like pts is like you know, I'm kind of given the the task of trying to build all the decks and all the shells of what people are going to play, and I usually, you know, attach myself to one or two of my own decks that I really want to make sure are good. And it's tough sometimes because I have to break myself away when it, when I kind of start to run out of time. It's crunch time, and the team needs to like you know work on actually tuning a deck. So oftentimes I have to detach myself from my babies, and that's difficult. But something I'm trying to improve on, just you know, being being objective. Yeah, I think I think you can take solace in the fact that like you come up with a Turbo Fog deck and then after the Pro Tour you give it to BDM or something, right? And then you get to see someone else having fun with your creation. Yeah, that's definitely a really cool feeling. I I, I appreciated that it was featured on the Mothership and hopefully some people had some fun with it. And I even saw a five O deck list that it wasn't like Turbo Fog, like Commit to Memory, which was how my deck was built, but dude had like Contingency Plan, Piece of the Puzzle, World Breaker, and uh, Splendid Reclamation. So obviously it was kind of inspired to some extent. Yeah, that's awesome. For me personally, I I went to Wizards a couple years ago, and when I came back, it was like, all right, I'm going to start playing again, and how do I want to approach this, you know? And one of the big things that always eluded me was Pro Tour success, and I was just kind of thinking about that, like, while I was at Wizards, and certainly while I was there, I learned a lot of things, like, how to... Just kind of like the process, you know, just in general, of, like, making magic decks and tuning them, and trying to figure out things and how to go about that. And it was like, man, I I should apply this to 
the Pro Tour preparation because like brand new formats has have always just been tough for me. You know, I'm I'm very good at like tuning a deck for an existing metagame, but brand new format it was always tough for me. So I worked really hard, and I'm still gonna keep working really hard on that. And a lot of it is what you said, just making better decisions, I guess. But yeah, a, a lot of it is just like trying to approach things more methodically and actually trying to figure out what other people are trying to do and why and try to actually play like a good deck as opposed to just like trying to break it and all that stupid stuff that generally ends to you losing a bunch of matches yeah i agree with all that it's it's interesting that preparing for the pt is kind of like a three-week segment of working at wizards kind of right yeah, sort of. I mean, it's it's different. It's not like you're trying to find the best deck to play in the tournament, necessarily. It's, you know, trying to learn all the card interactions, which certainly helps. But then from those interactions, it's like, is this fun? Like, is there something else that we're missing? Like, is there a deck that's, like, close to viable that would be fun that, like, it doesn't have a certain card or whatever, you know? So, yeah, a little bit different. But obviously, winning the last PT, it's like, okay, I, I guess you know, you could say that I did it or whatever, but I don't think so. I still think I have a a long ways to go. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's always good to have perspective about things, but, you know, like you said, you you probably wouldn't have registered 22 swamps three years ago, right? No, absolutely not. I'm not not proud of it, but whatever, scoreboard. (laughs) Next question is from uh, Lefty Logan 1023. After top eighting two opens and top 64ing an invitational, what would be the easiest way to get sponsored or work for somebody like Star City Games? Not not to nitpick the the way this this question was offered up, but uh, I think easiest is not something to focus on here. It's like if you really want something, then you should put yourself out there and just submit an article to our editor. And if it's good and you feel like you actually have something to say, then that's that's a path to you know work for Star City or vice versa. If you want to get sponsored by someone, then you basically just have to show that you're willing to put the effort into it. I don't I don't know if you would describe like your reaction to this this way but i was like kind of offended by this question because of the word easiest it's well, like that's the first thing i said so yeah i guess you yeah, could say that most things in life are not easy and i've been doing this for a very long time basically 15 years you've also been doing this for a very long time like 10 years yeah it's a little over roughly yeah there's no easy way to go about it man like you gotta bust your ass you have to actually like put in work make sure that you can show someone that you can provide them with value, and that is why they would want to like hire you or sponsor you. And top eighty two opens and top sixty four in invitational, those are those are good results, right? But it's like there are also a, a lot of other people with those results. So what separates you from them? You know, like what kind of value are you trying to provide to these people? Because it's not just like how do I trick someone in giving me money? Like I don't <laughs> think that's that's the, that's not the right way to go about it, right? It's like. You know, you want to actually embark on some sort of partnership with some people and have it be mutually beneficial. So, again, what value do you provide to them? Yeah, I I like summing it up with demonstrating value. But, you know, I also think the kind of cheesy cliche adage, if you will, of, you know, nothing that's worth it is easy or, you know, worth working for. Like, all those things are actually true. It just got too hard. It's supposed to be hard. If it wasn't hard, everyone would do it. The hard is what makes it great. I, I think that majors, you have the right idea where it's like, you know, just submit an article to the editor or, you know, write some content on a blog, do a podcast and stuff like that. Just like put yourself out there, make sure that 
you are demonstrating that you are capable of like producing good high quality content and then it's just only a matter of time before someone snatches you up you know because if if they don't they're making a mistake i agree with all that i think uh something that people kind of underrate it's like you know i really want to write for somebody or you know i really want to produce some content or whatever it's like easy is not the right word but it's pretty easy to say like you know i'm i know a lot about this one deck or you know about this one format or whatever and so i'm gonna like you know really do that for one or two really good pieces or whatever but it's it's a lot harder to actually have something to say week in week out yeah i i agree completely and not everyone plays magic every week like we do this is our job like we are thinking about this constantly and we have things to say all the time so doing this stuff every week is not difficult for us but it could be for anyone else you know I mean, I I would say that it was it was difficult for me starting out. Like it's it's tough. Yeah, well, I mean, once you kind of adjust to approaching it like a job, and you know, even maybe if you're not playing a bunch of games, like I don't really play many games, but I'm always like looking at deck lists and thinking about the format, etc. Yeah, watching coverage. Yeah. Yep. So it's it's not easy. Do some work. Get your name out there, however you can, and eventually good things will happen. That's kind of my take on it. Agreed. So, next question is from at Ninth on Breakers, which is a a great Twitter handle. I think that's dope. I I think BBD should have that one probably. But <laughs> it is. What do you think is the biggest mistake people regularly make when testing? Short and sweet. Uh, not focusing on what matters. Whenever people say say you want to play a test matchup or whatever, and and you play ten games, which is for whatever reason the arbitrary number that people decide to play all the time, they're like, all right, I went eight and two. It's a good matchup. It's like, no, that doesn't really, you know, explain anything. You know, maybe people didn't really understand how the games were supposed to play out. You weren't able to deconstruct the play patterns properly. Maybe somebody made some mistakes. Maybe there's some mulligans. Uh, maybe people missed land drops, whatever. But like saying I won, in this case, 80% of the games doesn't actually give you any tangible information. So I think people really focus on those things that don't actually matter instead of trying to actually learn again we've said this the the true matchup or just to improve themselves and and understand the decks and how they work beautiful yeah man i i want to find the truth and i think a lot of people want to be like i'm 60 40 and that's all i want to figure out but there's so much more that goes into that and you talked about like mulligans missing land drops but it's also just like how the decks are constructed and you change like five cards in a deck list the matchup could be completely different or what matters in the matchup could be completely different those are the things you have to figure out you can play a matchup and be on the 20 percent side right like you go two and eight you change five cards and now it's like closer to 50 50 so like when someone says like how is mardu against zombies or whatever what do you tell them if those are the things you know it's like you can't just give them a number you're like these are the things that matter and if you looked at two deck lists i could tell you how they match up against each other but just saying like well in one set i went two and eight and one said i went five and five make your own decisions it's like no that doesn't help yeah i think people are also focused way more on actually winning and losing and testing where obviously none of that actually matters all that matters is trying to prepare yourself the best for the tournament you're going to play yeah dude i'm i am all in favor of when it when a game comes down to like it being kind of close like you can just pack it in it doesn't matter or like the game's gonna go on for 10 more turns it doesn't matter really or, like, you know, it comes down to whether or not burn top decks a lightning bolt or something. Who cares? Right. The result is just completely irrelevant to how the actual game plays out. Exactly. Yeah, hitting your 30%er doesn't change anything in testing. Man, are they only 30%? It feels much higher. Uh, well, take take that with a grain of salt. Just like <laughs> I went 8-2 against burn. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, next one is from Faku Barbosa. You nailed that. Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Uh, we, we talked a little bit in the Discord about this. His question was, 
about communication and how that affects the decks that people play. So basically, if Wizards shared more information or allowed other people to post information, would people be more likely to play rogue decks? You know, in Hearthstone, you see, like, Discover Mages killing it, and suddenly it's the best deck and, like, causes the format to turn and everything. But if you never saw that information, you'd never end up playing it. The format would never end up moving. So what does the amount of information that gets, like, spread versus, or, like, you know, held back, how does that impact, like, the metagame and... Is, is that potentially doing stuff like, you know, making people, like, play Marvel more? Because, you know, it like, all the numbers that the people are allowed to see say that Marvel's the best deck. So this is this is a deep question, yeah. Yeah, so let's, let's, let's try to break it down into bite-sized chunks, shall we? Sure, um, go nuts. All right, so, like, is, is communication the the cause of whether rogue decks are viable or not? Is, is that the best way of kind of making this question very simple? So there are the the Magic Online decks. There are tournament results. Those are the the result like those are the, that's the information that people have access to, right? Mm-hmm. And there were previous things like matchup data that websites like MTG Goldfish used to publish, but are no longer able to. And also, like Wizards does not post every single deck list from the daily events. So how does that influence things? Is is that like killing rogue decks, which potentially kills churn in the format? Does it make people like more likely to play the best deck because the limited information they have just tells them that that is the only option? So I would theoretically think that the less information that is given out, it would actually improve the chances of rogue decks being correct, or sorry, being being played. My, my argument would be that if you could see that Marvel is, you know, 65% plus against everything through, you know, thousands of matches online, then that would actually cause you to play Marvel. I don't know. I, I kind of went back and forth on this for a while, and then from playing Hearthstone and seeing what, like, uh, Vicious Syndicate does. Yeah, so every every week they post, like, basically a new metagame breakdown where they have, like, thousands upon thousands of people that have, like, their, their match results tracked through a program, and they compile all that data... And they're like, these are the tier one decks because they win more than 52% of the time. Here are the tier two decks and whatever. And if there's like a deck that is like suddenly kind of like trending upward, like it's doing a lot better, then they're like, hey, spotlight on this deck. Like these are the three tier one decks. It's good against like all three of them. This is probably what you should be playing this week. That causes turn in the metagame. Whereas if if I didn't have information or if I didn't have that information, I I would never like pick up Silence Priest or whatever. Yeah. Okay. I, I can I can see where you're going with this, man. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, obviously, like Hearthstone being a digital only game, and maybe not easier, but it's more significant to glean the results of like the latter play from Hearthstone than like you know various tournaments in Magic. Obviously, there's there's less tournaments in Magic. There's less people playing at all times. I don't. I mean, this is this is, this is difficult. I'm not sure. Yeah. So uh, another thing is that. When I go through and I look at all these deck lists, like these daily event results, I am more likely to not play Marvel or something leading up to a tournament, which then could cause me to not play Marvel because maybe I find something else. Like, if I'm seeing, like, new and interesting decks, and I'm seeing, like, these decks do well. So the fact that, like, less deck lists get published, like, I want to see every single deck list. And that I think that makes me more likely to not play Marvel. Okay. I mean, I certainly understand why you personally want to see more deck lists because, you know, content producer, and that's just something you generally enjoy doing. So w- would you argue that the lack of data is is bad for the, the brewer, for lack of a better word? 
I think so, because for me, like, I, I find it difficult to build brand new decks. Like, I will mostly just iterate and riff off of an idea that I see. And in order for me to do that, I need to see more ideas. Since data is being held back, I, and I'm seeing less things, I am more likely to just play Marvel and be part of, you know, the quote-unquote problem, instead of, like, I don't know, for example, like, GP Manila last weekend, and even uh, the GP in Copenhagen, like, those GPs were more closely representative of the Magic Online standard metagame than Omaha was. Because there were, like, a lot of green-black decks, a lot of energy, kind of like mid-range aggro decks, a lot of Jeskai vehicles, and like those things were things that were popping up online, and we saw that a little bit. But imagine if like a week before those Grand Prix, this data gets posted where it's like Jeskai vehicles is a 55% against everything. Then more people would play that deck. And then the next week, like people would be targeting that deck. And then, I don't know, like is Marvel even a problem at that point if like the format continues to churn? Like if Marvel is only good for one or two weeks out of every month, like, how big of a deal is that? But instead, it kind of gets hammered down your throat that, like, Marvel's the best deck. If you want to win in Standard, you have to play that deck. Okay, so I actually think that your your point about, like, being able to take ideas and extrapolate some of that and make different decks from that information, I, I do agree with that. But I still think, like, and, and I guess there's there's some bias in my answer, obviously, because my assumption, which, you know, may be true or false, is that if we had all of the data, then we would see that Marvel is actually, like, by win percentage, like, hugely problematic. Now, that may not be true, of course, but I, I think that, yes, maybe the lack of published decklists hurts uh, rogue decks, but I think if people were confronted with the truth, in this case, the, the truth that I'm projecting is that Marvel is the best and would have obscene win rates, then that would be problematic as well, as far as rogue yeah. decks. So, so for this format specifically, I'm I'm kind of inclined to agree with you. I do think that Marvel is not only the best deck, but it's also capable of being tuned to beat new threats, like this energy deck or Just Guy Vehicles or whatever. The data wouldn't necessarily help this format. It could. It's possible. But in other formats, certainly, I think this data could help a lot. All right. That's reasonable. Yeah, obviously, we're not going to come to some <laughs> dramatic conclusion where we figure it out, but this is something interesting to think about, for sure. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like we lived in a world where... Like, Star City used to post the matchup data from the Opens because they had all the deck lists and everything. I used to do some of that stuff when I first started out. I don't know. I think I think it was interesting. I, I think that new decks had more eyes on them thanks to that information, and then that just caused natural churn. But, like, in the world that we're living in, we don't have anything to incentivize us to play anything other than, like, what the Hive Mind continually says is the best deck. I, I do think that more information would likely help instead of hurt, which I think is contrary to what most people believe. Certainly, it's like, if we go back to the Dark Ages and there's no internet, then things would probably also be better, right? But we are in a world where there is, like, some information out there, and it's just kind of like, I don't know, Marvel's good, and then people just continually parrot that, and we don't actually move on. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I, I think it also helps that, like, Magic is different from Hearthstone, the fact that we have more frequent releases, and the set rotations are different. Like, churn kind of happens naturally just through, you know, new sets being released every three months. Right, but I, I don't know. Like, if you look at since Journey to Ungoro came out, like, it's been a good format because it shifts every week. And I think a lot of it is in response to the stuff that Vicious Syndicate puts out where they're like, hey, this deck is doing really well, and then that deck just explodes on ladder. Well, I mean, I certainly agree with you that I think Journey has been, like, kind of the, the bright spot of Hearthstone. Like, I've played way more in this expansion than I have in the last two years, but I think, generally speaking, that that's not necessarily been the case. 
Yeah, and, and that's fair. I mean, we'll see what happens, like, if, if they just got lucky or if they're actually, like, refining their craft and maybe every set from here on out is going to be excellent with, like, the occasional stinker or whatever. But I don't know. It's It's been really good, and I do think that the, the data has helped with that. It, it is possible that, like, it could have just been, like, all Quest Rogue, Quest Warrior, you know, if there was no data, so. All right, and whoever asked about a Hearthstone episode, there you go. Boom. Yep. That's, that's like, a third. <laughs> All right, next question uh, from Dylan in the Discord. Uh, what do you think are the metrics that should be used to determine if a card should be banned or not? Which do you think are most important? Obviously, this is with Marvel in mind, but uh, also in a general fashion. So I think there's, like, a couple different camps. Uh, some some people are, like, purists for the numbers, and it's like, you know, show me the data. Is it actually dominating the format? Or kind of what you are alluding to previously, is it just people parroting the fact that Marvel is the best? And the other camp is just, like, how incredibly unfun is it to like get Ulamog on turn four X amount of the time. And so I think you kind of have to like look at the play patterns, look at how bad they are in terms of like player experience and then weigh that against the actual numbers. I think it is just are our, our people having fun and obviously fun is subjective and different people want different things, but some of it could do with play patterns like Ulamog on turn four. And some of it could do with like, you know, maybe you just play against the same deck every round and that's kind of boring. And like, that makes you want to go to tournaments less, you know, because you're just getting the same experience every time. And maybe that's not fun. I, I think a lot of it has to do with that. And yeah, you know, look at, look at tournament attendance, right? Like modern Grand Prix attendance is relatively high, just always. And more people play standard and fewer people go to standard Grand Prix. I think like standard just kind of as a whole is mostly played out like two months into a format. Yeah, I mean, certainly you could always just break it down to the obvious fact, which is Hasbro is a business. People should naturally want Magic to make money because it's the best game on Earth, and if it's doing well, then we get to keep playing it. And people vote with their pocketbook, so if people aren't showing up and paying for tournaments and playing, then that's not good. Yeah, so I I wouldn't say that a ban is a necessity every single time when something like that happens because just over the last 10 years like that has kind of just been the trend. Numbers initially are generally pretty high, numbers toward the end of a format are generally pretty low, and formats like Modern that don't have that rotation are just generally high, period. This is one where I think people aren't having fun playing Standard. It's not even like getting Ulamog on turn 4 sucks, but it's like when you're playing Marvel and you need to hit your Ulamog on turn four to win and you don't, that's not cool either because your your deck just has this fail rate, you know? That combined with the deck just kind of being oppressive and dominant, I mean, I, I think it's kind of a no-brainer to, to ban a card like Marvel. Obviously, the same thing was kind of true with Felidar Guardian and once that happens, you kind of have to look at what's going to happen to the format and... I think a lot of us, myself included, miss the fact that, like, Marvel would just replace it. Sometimes you have to, like, ban a card and also preemptively ban a card. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one of the, the most difficult things about entertaining the idea of a ban is, like, you know, what is the format going to look like afterwards? The the implications of the ban are huge, and it's, it's tough to figure out. Yeah, and this is one where it's, like, there'd be, like, Black Green, Zombies, Mardu, Blue-Red Control... And I, th- I think another deck, too. Just, like, normal teamer energy. And, like, that sounds like a fun format to me. Yeah, also blue-white and some other French stuff, so. Yeah, and obviously it could be like, hey, I'm missing another combo deck, you know? And that would suck, but I do think that at this point people would be much happier if Marvel got banned. They would just be more likely to play standard. All right, next. Uh, at Meckler, my, my homie from Iowa. Why was Omaha dominated by Marvel while the other two GPs weren't is looking only at the top eights wrong? I don't think looking at the top eights only is wrong, but 
obviously, you know, that doesn't tell the, the whole tale of the tournament, but of course those people rose to the top, so it, you should give them more weight than maybe the top 64 necklace or something like that. But obviously the, the way that we look at tournaments is kind of defined by the narrative, like you want to follow the top eight, see who actually wins the tournament, etc. But I think a lot of it is Brad kind of broke it in some regard, like... Also, like, Paul Dean, top four of the tournament, like, uh, they worked together. They had, like, 73 of the same 75, I believe. I think they kind of just figured out how to build the Marvel deck so that it beat up on other Marvel decks the majority of the time and also uh, had a good plan against decks that were situated to fight Marvel with, like, their Uvenwald Hydras moving towards more Shrine of the Forsaken Gods and, like, kind of mitigating the, the fail rate to some extent because, like, actually making drawing Ulamog not necessarily a problem because they're actually going to hit that much mana. So I think that's a big part of it, but I guess uh, I, I have issue with, like, Omaha was dominated by Marvel, the other two GPs weren't. Like, that verbiage is, like, just saying Marvel won the Grand Prix versus not. Well, there were six in top eight of Omaha and only one in top eight of the other two. Oh, but two combined? Okay, I was not actually aware of that. One, one each. One each, okay. Yeah, like I said, those those Grand Prix mostly represented Moto, where it was like there's a lot of aggro decks that are creeping up to fight Marvel that are just naturally good against it, and... Marvel has not adapted yet because it didn't have to. You know, like, those weren't real decks, right? The flip side of that coin is that if you look at the top 16s or top 32s, whatever, it's like 50% Marvel. All right, good on so you it's for not, doing the research and, and picking me up. Dude, I, I do that. That is literally my job. That That is what <laughs> I like doing. I, I look at, like, the, the metagame breakdown and generally, like, whatever deck list they'll post... You know, maybe it's, like, that people who went 9-0 and, like, don't even end up top 32-ing, like, I still want to see their deck, right? Yeah. It's also worth noting that, like, top 8 GPs is hard, and going 13-2, I guess if you're in Omaha, it was 12-2-1 made it. But going 12-2 is not easy, certainly requires a reasonable amount of variance. It's not that different if you go 13-2 and two or 12-3. and three. So I, I do think that, like, trying to keep the big picture in mind, looking at the top 32 or whatever amount of deck list they post, like, gives you a better picture of what was doing well in that tournament. Because I, I'm sure if just, like, six matches went differently in either Grand Prix, we could have, like, completely different top eights where, like, you know, one of them... Like, Omaha is two Marvels in top eight, and the other two GPs have six Marvels in top eight, except it was the reverse, right? So... I always have issue with, like trying to view things in that way it's like of course everything's kind of like razor thin margins when it comes to magic like especially in high level tournaments in the last couple rounds when good players are playing against each other so yeah so the short of it is yes looking at only the top eights is fairly incorrect i think yeah obviously we we gravitate towards that because we want to see someone win the tournament yeah top like you have to make a cut right like day two counts and then top eight counts and then top four counts and then if you win it counts right but like I mean, I guess some people are, but, like, no one is just, like, you know, I top 32 or whatever, and, like, that's, like, a big deal, right? Like, you don't put that on your resume, necessarily. Sure. Or, like, I I didn't hit my Ulamog on turn four to be top <laughs> into the GP or whatever. Number of times I bricked. Uh, next question, at Zeramos X, is the energy mechanic the real core issue with Marvel's dominance, not being able to interact slash too much energy generation and oversight? It basically just comes down to the numbers on Marvel, you know, versus what it's doing. So the fact that you can play it on turn four, you can curve one card into it, would we versus puzzle not cleanly go, you know, play it on turn two, crack it on turn three, spin on turn four, you know, is the issue. So I mean it's it's just like, you know, what is the, the input versus the output? So in this case, like, yes, the energy mechanic is the issue, but I don't think it's because you can't necessarily like interact with energy. It's just that the numbers are 
too small based on what Aetherworks Marvel is doing. I also think that, generally speaking, the, the unsung hero of these various energy decks that kind of gets ignored by the majority of the populace is, like, how powerful a Tomb with Aether is. Oh, God, that card. So, like, you, should, nice. you shouldn't be able to build decks in this manner, have them play three or four colors without a real cost, and then also let them play, like, 21 or 22 lands. Yeah, so you, you get to play more colors, you get to play more energy cards from all the colors... You get to play fewer lands, so that means that you are probably, you know, going to hit land four, land five, and then kind of stop for a little bit. And in the meantime, you're drawing more things that make energy. So yeah, like, it is kind of trivial to get to six energy for Marvel, and then once you activate Marvel, like, an average spin is probably going to give you two energy, right? So it's it's really not that difficult to, to get back up to six. But realistically, like, if Marvel costs six, or like costs five and ETB tapped, or whatever it would be completely fair, and if you take that away, I don't think that, like, energy is busted and, like, people need to interact with your energy counters. That doesn't really solve the issue. It's just, like, those are a lot of, like, good cards, and interacting with their energy count wouldn't necessarily make those cards less good. Like, Rogue Refiner is still drawing a card, Harness Lightning still killing most of your creatures. It is Marvel itself. Yeah, I mean, I like a lot of what energy does. Like, a lot of the cards in the mechanic itself are pretty cool. It's just Marvel is the source, but... Alright, Seagull at... Bunch of random letters. Yeah, who knows why? I don't know. Uh, If there was a Smash Brothers-style MTG documentary, he says who would be the six players that are covered. The Smash doc had seven, bro. I don't know. Oh, man. Brutal. But if you guys have not watched this, my God, you need to watch this. I don't care if you've, like, never played Smash before in your life. If you play Magic, you follow competitive Magic, like, you will enjoy this. I think it's safe to say that. It's called The Smash Bros. It's on YouTube. There are nine episodes. They're, like, 30 minutes long. It's four and a half hours of your life. It'll be the best four and a half hours you spend. I guarantee it. It's a strong plug. But but I did enjoy it. I think you told me to watch it maybe two and a half years ago, something like that. I don't know. Okay, so you watched that, but you haven't finished Veronica Mars yet. Got it. Oh, this is nice. Nice, man. Uh, <laughs> Look, man, I, gotta, I, I haven't brought it up in a while I haven't brought it up in a while <laughs> Yeah, it's good, it's worth, it's, it's worth your time So I, I guess you would kind of want to strike Some balance of like Obviously interesting personalities and then like Dominant players o- Owen strikes me as a pretty obvious inclusion I guess there's also like Enter the Battlefield Which kind of did this to some extent, right? To some extent, yeah So it's basically like It goes through the like inception Or conception, whatever Of like competitive Smash And starts with like the the best player from that era and then just like every person who was considered the best player after him and between like like then the very beginning and kind of like the the recent past you have like all the best players you have like the entire story of that game and that competitive scene told and certainly magic's like a little bit longer so maybe it's more than seven but like seven is a, a pretty good number for who the best players have been right like uh meckler named john kai nasif PV, Luis, Yuya, and Owen. I would definitely want to get Kenji in there somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the, the the story of Japanese magic is definitely, like, an important part of the, I don't know, what is it, mid-2000s era or something? Yeah, for sure. So, I, I don't know. I think that would be sweet. But it, it also seems like the, the Smash people have, like, more fun. Like, there's there's more <laughs> trash talking, and the, the characters are a little bit more compelling. I don't know. You know, you're you're playing a fighting game against your opponent. You know, you're both watching the same TV. Like you all, you both have the same information. Like you're not trying to like conceal things. So you you do have a lot more ability to talk shit. So I don't know if if that aspect of the game itself is what makes the scene more interesting. I don't know. Do you have anything to contribute to that point? 
Yeah, I, I don't know. It just seems like they have way more fun, and that's it. Yeah. We, I mean, we take it, ourselves so seriously. That's true. I mean, it's, the, the storyline of, like, smashed my my understanding, and you can correct me since you know more about it. It's like, you know, there are certain... There's a, this upper echelon of players who literally just win all the tournaments. Yeah. I don't know how many it is, but but the point being, like, you know, there's no variance in Super Smash Brothers. Like, the people who are, are great at it are just great, and they're, like, they're huge favorites to win every tournament they play. It was it was five, now they're six. Now I think that there are a lot of other people that are, like, kind of getting up to their level, but it's been, like, those six for a very long time. Yeah. So that's very different from, like, you know, obviously best magic players in the world they have 60 some odd win percentages which is very high but you know it's not something that's going to translate to you winning tournaments you know all the time every year yes you know john was the best is possibly still the best who knows and he did not win literally every tournament but like between those six people they do win literally every tournament you know like that is dominance right right? so i guess like that's kind of a more compelling story like that and the fact that they're also just like shit talking each other and like they have these rivalries and stuff like that makes it super interesting definitely agree with that and also just like the way that narratives have kind of been spun in magic recently is like you know the this the surging of like the team series and like the way that pro players like organize and work together so that's something that that people have kind of focused on more than individual players in the last couple years i think yeah everyone because they want to be on everyone's team or whatever like, if they need to, everyone's pretty friendly. There are no rivalries. Like, saying there's absolutely zeros is obviously, you know, embellishing a little bit. But, yeah, mostly people are pretty friendly. We all get along, and I don't think that that makes for compelling TV. But, oh well. Yeah, generally agree. I, I don't think the, the real-world MTG would be particularly interesting. <laughs> Ooh, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> all right. At Meganista66, what can people with full-time jobs and moderate budget do to get better at local level magic uh generally i think the the number one hurdle whenever somebody asks me about magic in general especially people who don't play and are just kind of interested in what what i do or what we do is that if a smart person has the right attitude then they can apply themselves and be great at magic and i think the the number one inhibitor for people being good at magic is how they approach the game from you know their own attitude and having proper perspective yeah, I th- for me, my fast solution would just be like, what are your goals and how well are you spending your time to accomplish those goals? Um, you can kind of tie this in with talking about playtesting earlier. It's like, you know, if you only have time to play 10 games in a weekend to prepare or whatever, then like make sure that you're actually learning and not just playing games of magic for the sake of playing magic. Unless you're just trying to have fun, then obviously do whatever. Yeah, if, if that's your goal, then cool. But that's also not going to necessarily translate into you getting better. Right. So. Figure out how you want to spend your time, what you want to accomplish by spending your time doing that, and go from there. So it's like, if if you want to learn a specific matchup, see if you can, like, find anything to read about that thing. Or see if you can find someone to, like, help you play that matchup who, like, knows the other side of it, you know? Just kind of go from there. Just, like, do the best you can with, like, your ability to learn and just try and absorb as much information as possible. Yeah. I, I would assume that if you're asking this question, that means you're probably seeking something with the correct attitude. So then it's just a matter of trying to allocate your time properly. Yep. Uh, at Ray Bechtel 2. How important is it to have a team or group of people to play with slash grind events with? Is it possible to solo using Magic Online as a tool? I would say yes, because, you know, we've just seen a handful of people do that. If I'm going to focus on the word important here, I would say it, it's fairly important to just, like, have people to hang out with and work with just because like 
it makes magic more fun. And if you're having fun, you're not going to get burnout as quickly, especially if you're trying to, you know, grind. So I think networking for the sake of that is very important. Definitely agree with that. I do think that it is possible to only play magic online, do not use outside resources and like still do well at a Grand Prix or Pro Tour or whatever. But again, you kind of have to like use your time well, figure out what you're trying to learn and just be able to like play test properly. Like if you just take a deck, play two leagues, don't change anything. Don't really, you know, think too deeply on is your deck a good choice? Why is it a good choice? Why is my deck specifically built this way? Like how do I sideboard those sorts of things? Then, you know, you're not really using your time properly. But uh, if you do implore all those things, then I do think it it's possible for you to just do it all on your own and do well. Like you, you are likely going to perform worse on average than someone that has a group of 10 Platinum Pros playtesting with them, for sure. Yep. But you, you can get there. It is definitely possible. I also just want to quickly note that I think that a big issue with people using Modo as a means to test is that they're so, like, you know, value-driven, for lack of a better way of putting it. Like, they think 5 owing the league is more important than actually learning the last card that they should play in their 75, that uh, they let that kind of work against them. Yeah. I I regularly spew off lots of tickets when trying to learn things. And to me that's worth it. Like I, I have the capability of doing that, but maybe maybe other people don't. I don't know. Yep. I <laughs> the amount of leagues I've dropped at dropped out of at like three matches is just kind of embarrassing really. Oh dude, I, I you play those three matches, you learn something and then it's like I can't play the last two. I don't care if I'm 3-0 or 2-1 or whatever. Like, I'm not going to play with this deck where I'm not going to learn anything, you know? Yep. To be fair, I'm usually not 3-0 in those situations, but... <laughs> right, right. But, like, you know, 2-1, it's like, oh, if I play one more, at least I can, like, drop and, and get my buy-in back or whatever. And it's like, yeah, too late. Yep. Not going to spend 30 minutes doing that. At Mr. Pate is the best way to improve at Constructed to pick a deck and smash out a ton of reps on Magic Online, assuming budget is not a concern. I feel like we kind of covered this to some extent, right? It's just, no, smashing out a ton of reps isn't going to do you anything unless you are using the, all those games to actually learn something every time. So, you know, if yeah. you can play 100 games and learn something from every single game, that's great. Obviously, you're going to probably be better prepared than if you didn't. Yep. And I put those questions next to each other because they kind of go hand in hand. Nice. In case you didn't notice. All right, next question. At Jacob Dershimer. I never know how to pronounce these people's names. I'm so sorry. You're doing good. I I, <laughs> I don't know, though. That's kind of the problem. Uh, I, I struggle with knowing when to take deck building risks in limited, rares notwithstanding. Is there an art to this or mostly intuition? A thing that I want to add is, like, we can also just talk about this as far as constructed. Yeah, I mean, I, def I definitely think a lot of it is intuition. Um, when it comes to limited specifically, I think it kind of goes back to, like, where are you and what are your goals? Like, if I'm at the Pro Tour and my deck is kind of average and maybe I can just, like, chop a land or play this, like, very specific trick that has, like, the potential to blow out an opponent, like, I'm more likely to do so in those, like, kind of, quote-unquote, high-pressure situations because, you know, the chances of giving myself the ability to 3-0 the draft is very important there. And also, like, my competition's going to be harder, so maybe I need to get a little bit luckier. And, you know, it's just kind of a risk-versus-reward system. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's... A lot of it is, like, how good is my deck? If, if my deck is very good, I will probably try to eliminate some of the bad things that can happen to you in Limited, where it's like, you know, maybe you draw too many spells and not enough creatures, or, like, they kill your first two creatures and, like, one of your tricks doesn't really do anything for the entire game, or, 
your your deck is great and if you didn't have like a bunch of great cards maybe you would play 16 land but since your deck is good your power level's high you have three glory bringers or something like i would probably just play 17 land you know like maybe make sure that you don't get mana screwed or whatever i think i'd shoot for that 18 with your triple glory bringer special but maybe maybe that's a bad example bad example (laughs) but you know what i mean you know it's just like eliminate some of the things that can cause variance to get you i mean if like major is saying like if my deck is weaker like yeah maybe i need to draw more spells than my opponent because my card quality is not very good so let's play 15 land or whatever i don't know Uh, maybe maybe you need to be very aggressive so you're gonna play like one more trick than you would normally play just because like you absolutely need to have them but in a deck that has like eight removal spells and 15 great creatures like i'm less inclined to play tricks in terms of applying this to constructed i guess like risk is a very strange word when it comes to constructed like typically i try to build my decks so that i could literally play as many games of magic as possible how many lands did you have in your marvel deck at the pt uh 23 and four servant yep and most people have 21 or 22 majors how many times did you like mulligan and get mana screwed or whatever oh probably like once or twice how many times did you just, like, flood out and lose horribly because you drew all lands? Mm, I don't think any, actually. Yeah, it's... Obviously, it's small sample size, but it, this is another case where your deck is doing the most powerful stuff in the format, plus you have a lot of ways to cope with mana flooding, like you have Chandra. You have four copies of Chandra Flamecaller. Play the extra mana source. You know, if your hand is a bunch of lands, you can always cycle it. Like, or you can hardcast Ulamog or whatever. Like, you are doing the most powerful stuff, but... The format is still fast enough where, like, if you miss a land drop, you could just lose. I don't think any of my Marvel opponents, like, missed a land drop when I was playing Zombies. (laughs) That's, like, kind of infuriating. (laughs) There's also so many ways to, like, mitigate those things in modern Magic eras. Like, you know, you have cycle lands now, you have creature lands. Like, there's, there's tons of stuff you can do with your mana. Just, like, allow yourself to, you know, make it to turn five and be alive. Yeah, and this is, this is kind of... The flip side of that, where it's like, we are mitigating risk because the deck is so powerful, right? When, when I generally build, like, a mid-range check control deck, I'll probably start a land heavy. Like, I'll generally play 25 if people are playing 24, or 26 if they're playing 25. And it's not because, like, I just immediately take a deck list and add a land. It's just I look at a deck and I'm like, this this looks like a 25 or 26 land deck, you know? Not what the other people are doing. And I think being able to make that distinction is important. And then playing the games and figuring out whether or not like that extra land is necessary whether like you have ways to mitigate flooding and stuff like that when i play aggro decks i realize that a lot of them don't have ways to get around actually flooding so i will generally keep like the 22 lands or whatever that people have i won't necessarily like take risks in constructed in that regard like the risk that i'm taking is that like i'll flood out or like my opponents will draw more spells than me or whatever and that is a risk to some degree, but I, yeah, like you said, I just want to make sure that my deck actually shows up and plays, you know? At ZMJ, when you're skimming a bunch of deck lists from a daily or tournament, what catches your eye? And I'm, I'm very interested in your answer. Oh, crap. I was actually going to say that, you know, maybe I should just, like, pass this along to you to answer first. But, but I'll, I'll, I'll go. It's generally stuff I'm not expecting. So, like... Again, if I'm trying, let's say I'm trying to like tune a Marvel deck for a tournament, then maybe I'll just like mostly focus on people's sideboards. You know, if, if there's like a trend that I think is weird, like maybe people are playing like main deck negate or something like that. You know, I, w- I want to take notice of that. Um, but I'm kind of looking at, you know, how people are building their sideboards uh, in a more broad sense. Like if I just see a deck that I've never seen before, obviously that catches my eye. If I see an interaction that I hadn't thought of, then, 
you know, maybe then the floodgates open. I'm just like, oh, crap, you can do that? Okay, like, I'm going to start building decks now. Yeah. My actual answer is, like, a little bit more romanticized. It's just, like, <laughs> it just kind of, like, when you see it, you'll know. I don't know. There, there have just been a few instances of that where it's, like, I'm skimming deck lists that went, like, 4-2 or better from Worlds in Italy, and Lucas Blohan had, like, one Thopter Foundry, one Sword of the Meek in his Dark Depths deck. <laughs> what? No, this, this, that's how I built Dark Depths. It was just like, I remembered that. I just saw that. I was like, that is awesome. What does that accomplish? What does that do? And like, it, now you start building decks with it, right? Okay, cool. I, I, I thought you were literally just like saying magic cards together, but no, that's awesome. Oh, no, he had one, well, one Sword of the Meek, one Thopter Foundry in his Dark Depths deck. And then like, I was not playing magic for like three months, but then like when I came back, there was a modern, or not modern, extended, I guess at the time, same yeah. thing. And... I was just like, oh, there's a PTQ. What should I play? Oh, this deck. Start, started building decks. And I just remembered that thing from three months ago because it was beautiful. It stuck out as something different that someone was doing. And then I just iterated on it because that's what I do. But yeah, it's anytime I see something new and unique, which was kind of what I was talking about before with like them showing me less things. Therefore, I'm able to build less things, you know? Yeah, I guess, I guess this kind of just like highlights the, the difference between how we look at things specifically. It's like, you know, you're you're trying to kind of build off something and i just want to just try something new i guess is the the most basic way of saying it it being new is is what gets my attention and then i'm like why did this person do this why did they make this decision right and like sometimes i just see it and i'm just like that is beautiful mm -hmm. you know like that is perfect i know it is perfect i will basically like never be like okay this this interaction is perfect or what they're doing is perfect but like the rest of their deck is never perfect like it's always like i have to change 10 cards or something but their hearts in the right place yeah exactly it's like oh man this person broke like this small aspect of it so yeah that's it all right next one at crime spiral which is also like <laughs> kind of a great name how much metagaming against the quote-unquote best deck like grixis death shadow should you do in modern and legacy when those formats are super diverse yo yo you okay all right all right so i was i was about to say you you left off in the delver part but i assume he's talking about uh legacy yeah Okay. All right. I was I was about to Yeah, so Grixis Death Shadow and Modern Delver and Legacy. Yeah, I was I was about to uh maybe go off on a little bit of a tangent, but no. I don't know. I think when it comes to like eternal formats that are more wide open, larger, you know, more more diverse metagames that you kind of just want to like hedge like against certain types of strategies like, you know, maybe I want a sweeper because there are good wide decks, maybe I want some pieces of graveyard hate because there are various graveyard decks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you don't want like best example I can think of off the top of my head is I would never sideboard, like, a Devour Flesh in my deck just to try to beat Death Shadow decks. I think that's a little too intense. But yeah, I think you want to try to cover all your bases. I really like Catch-All specifically in those types of formats. Maelstrom Pulse, Abrupt Decay kind of cards. Yeah, uh, I'm, the, I'm the exact same way. I want to consolidate sideboard slots whenever I can in order to hedge against a wider portion of the field. Like, I try to be somewhat prepared for basically everything and then if there is something like Rixus Death Shadow or Delver that's like 10 or 15 percent of the format and that's the most popular deck then I want to play something that is just strategically good against it if I'm stuck in a spot where I only have one deck and how do I prepare for that sometimes it's like well I can never beat this deck so why would I try but a lot of the time it is just like well if you consolidate like your four circle of protection greens and your four circle of protection reds into like cards that are good against like those decks and other things then you're going to end up doing better as a whole than instead of just like 
metagaming super hard against one thing and, you know, playing very targeted narrow hate. So you're not a big fan of the, the popper strategy of two circle of protection everything's? <laughs> no, I am not. I am not. Although popper is a format where it's like those things, those hedges that we would play don't really exist. And that's, that's true. If, yes. if circle of protection like KOs someone, then whatever, you know? Maybe that's the only way you can beat Boggles or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but as far as like modern and legacy, those tools do exist. And you have just a, a never-ending string of possibilities for ways that you can build your decks to be good against those decks while also not really sacrificing anything in a lot of other spots. Next one, at MS Nelson. What are things that influence you to change slash tune a deck for an upcoming event? Like, how do you respond to metagame shifts? Well... I'm basically always going to change or tune a deck for an upcoming event. I don't think I've ever just either shuffled up the same 75 or just kind of like grabbed a deck list from a 5-0 or whatever and just played it. As far as how to respond to metagame shifts specifically, it's, you know, just just identifying what people are doing and uh, trying to take appropriate action for those things. Yeah, so the, the things that would influence me to change or tune a deck are the things that I learned from the last tournament or, like, in the weeks in between. And I think that's kind of the important part, where if you play a tournament and you either think that your deck was perfect or that you did not learn anything, you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah, I, I generally agree with that statement. I, th- I think it is possible to say that your deck was near perfect, but not changing a card is, is kind of lunacy, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, your deck would have to be perfect and also... No one, like, the format would have to not shift. Yeah, and that's actually a good thing to talk about. It's like, if you if your deck was perfect and you didn't succeed, and no, and say you were working alone in this example, like, I don't see how that's really possible. Assuming your deck is perfect and you do succeed, then that should create some shifts in the metagame, you know, naturally, which you have to respond to again. Yep, absolutely. Kane's Lance, 2000. How do you make changes to Grixis Death Shadow for the meta? Other pros say that you can't meta for a tournament with more than 10 people. Has anyone actually said that? I'm not sure. I would assume so. There, There is a metagame. That is just a fact. So I don't know who said that or why. And a lot of it is kind of just what we're talking about with making hedges and just trying to prepare for basically anything while not focusing too specifically on one thing. Um, in, t- in terms of Grixis Death Shadow specifically, I think it's interesting to compare and contrast this to, like, the old-school Grixis Control decks that we used to play. There came a point where we were, like, playing full Manor Mages and thing- maybe even, like, Molten Reigns, I think, was the original card we played to try to beat, like, big mana strategies. And then we kind of just discovered that it didn't matter, we still couldn't beat them, even with those hate cards. So we kind of just, like, you know, punted away those matchups and said, if we get paired against those decks, like, it sucks, but we're probably just going to lose no matter what. I went 2-0 against Tron in the Invitational in Las Vegas. You are a champion. That's, that's all I have to say. I think that's the only tournament where I've dealt Tron like a point of damage, you know? And I, I did it twice. I don't know how. <laughs> I, I, I beat uh, Tron with the original version with 4 Jace at, at that open, and I don't know how. But yeah, I've never 4 Jace, no clock? Yeah, just just nothing. But anyways, like, like you know, eventually as we tuned that deck and played it in more tournaments, we kind of came to that conclusion that we just like couldn't beat this matchup, so we're just going to throw it away. Uh, so that's kind of a, a response that you can make once you kind of learn the, the truth about, like, you know, when hedging doesn't even work. Like, what do you do? You should build your deck differently. Uh, in terms of Grixis Death Shadow specifically, like, one of the very huge strengths of the deck is that it has game against everything because it can produce a quick clock and then back it up with disruption. So in this case, like, I do want to hedge against everything and have a plan. Yeah, because you can. It actually does stuff when you do that. Right. 
Whereas pure control does not have that luxury, which is another benefit of actually playing something that's proactive. Yep. So recognizing, uh, like, you know, how you can actually position your deck and whether it's going to make an impactful improvement on the matchup is really important. Yep. At C3 Watts, hypothetically, if you could tune a Marvelous for the mirror or the field, but not both, which do you choose and why? And I, I thought this was kind of interesting because it kind of went hand in hand with the other question, like, what portion of the metagame are you actually supposed to be targeting? And what is more beneficial to the tournament success? Yeah, this is definitely interesting. So, like, Goldfish would suggest that, like, I think it's in the upwards of, like, 36% of the winner's metagame is Marvel right now on Moto. And you kind of take that and, like, let's say that me personally, I'm preparing for a Grand Prix and I have three buys. Like, I'm probably more interested in trying to target the, you know, the quote-unquote winner's metagame. Like, I'm going to have to beat Marvel X number of times to actually win the tournament. And if that's my goal, then I'm probably more interested in trying to situate myself in the mirror. Yeah, realistically, the answer is try and do both as best you can. Yeah, but that was the question. I know, I know. But you, you should generally not have to completely sacrifice half of the metagame in order to fight one half. Like, if you if you automatically win against 50% of the metagame and you automatically lose against the other 50%, like, you're just flipping coins, why would you do that? Try a little harder, please. Or, or just, like, pick a deck that is more strategically sound at, you know, beating a diverse field. Yeah. In this case, obviously, Marvel is not applicable. Yeah, just hopefully we never have to make that choice. I don't know. Whatever. I, I don't really want to flip coins, really. I'm going to try and beat everything, if possible. At... Emperor Kursan, do you think there's any room for rogue decks in standard? I almost put this with, like, the beginning question with the information and stuff. Uh, I mean, I'm always going to say yes, but uh, realistically, I would just focus on tuning a Marvel list in, in this day and age. So the the top decks from Goldfish now include Red-Green Pummeler, Esper Vehicles, Red-Green Energy, White-Blue Flash, Four Color Vehicles... Mardu vehicles, Teamer Energy, like, these are a lot of decks that did not exist really at the Pro Tour. Yeah, people so, are, are finding different ways to, you know, maybe not have an overwhelmingly good match against Marvel, but be competitive with it. Right, when when the format gets super narrow, then it's a lot easier to exploit. It is very possible for people to actually do that, especially now. Rogue decks will almost always have a part in the metagame. Like, they are almost always viable. You know, maybe if, like, you're expected win percentage like playing marvel in a tournament was like 66 percent and you played teamer energy instead like you could still get to like 60 percent maybe a little higher if like people play in sideboard poorly against you but like most of the time you're probably going to do a little bit worse than just figuring out one of the best decks but it it could still be worth it and if if that's what you want to do like that is still a viable option Robert Wright asks, do you think team-constructed formats are the future of competitive MTG and possibly Pro Tours? Yes and no. Um, I definitely appreciate that the SG Tour is kind of incorporating them more into the schedule, but that's basically, you know, a business move. It's, you know, people really like them. They're actually going to come out and play in them. So it's it's a win-win for everyone. But I think that, you know, competitive MTG, especially the Pro Tour, is, is still going to remain an individual sport. Yeah, it's, it's one-on-one. Like, people like playing team events. But what if every tournament was a team event, you know? Like, once you get to a point where it's, like, super saturated, it starts to lose kind of its luster. And right now we're in a world where people are still itching to play more of them, but if they just had them every weekend, they would be less special and people would want to play them less. Yep. And it's not what Magic is about. I think there, it's always just going to be one-on-one is, like, the purest form or whatever. But, yeah, occasionally people want to do different stuff. 
yeah, I, I think the like you know slow upward trend towards more team events is definitely great. But yeah, I don't know. I, I like its spot right now. At Brett Kroger asks, how do you play against an unknown deck uh, or deck you didn't test against in the later rounds of a GP or Open? So there's like you know the the snarky answer, which is like you know you should have done your homework. And if you yeah, that's if, my answer. If you just prepared better for the tournament, then you should at least have an idea of what anybody could be doing against you. But let's just say that you know you play against someone who legitimately just brings out this crazy rogue deck and you have theoretically no idea how they're going to kill you or something like that like surely they're going to play staples of the format against you it's just impossible that they are playing all weirdo cards you lantern know. oh lantern's a great example actually yeah so if you played against uh zach elsick like at the first gp that he played against it you know you you have a basic idea of what's going on within the first turn or two of the game it's like sure maybe he leads on lantern of insight and you're like you know what the hell's going on but then he plays like a codex shredder and you're like oh i get it okay you know so it's, it's just being able to quickly adapt and kind of adjust you know what your strategy is and what your deck is capable of doing against you know what you perceive is going on on the opposing side so i think the best way to go about this is basically do what majors does where it's like your your opponent presents you with an interaction right like codex shredder and lantern of insight what if if you had those in your deck what else would you be trying to do like you just then have to brainstorm what could possibly be in your opponent's deck yep and i think that's it's- literally like the most extreme example possible so yeah. Majority of the time, like your opponent's going to be playing, you know, cards that you're familiar with. So it's just kind of making quick adjustments about who, you know, is the basically who's the beatdown of the matchup. Yeah. It's oh man, my opponent played Glorybringer instead of Aetherworks Marvel. Like, what do I do now? Like, well, bring in more removal. I don't know. You know, <laughs> kill the damn dragon. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you play against Lantern. It's like okay, he's he's trying to lock me out uh, of my draw steps. Like. How does he make it so he doesn't die? Oh, and Snaring Bridge is a good one. Okay, like, what else? Like, how does he empty his hand? If if, his, if he's trying to empty his hand, his the average CMC of his deck has to be pretty low. Like, what other things could he have in his deck? And, yeah, you just go from there. And then it's like, I guess, once you figure out what their deck is trying to do, like, how do you think this matchup is going to play out? Like, what do you think the important things are going to be? Because I think a lot of people are just, like, playing against Lantern for the first time, and they're like, oh, I'm just going to crack my fetch lands and whatever just like continue doing things the normal way but yeah if you thought about it a little bit you would probably not be doing the same stuff this is from uh sean noelden with basically all of death shadow existing for ages how do you balance time trying to strike gold with new brews versus refining old ones so it's like now we have this deck that we will just register for every modern tournament right so now do we spend a bunch of time like testing and tuning this deck or you know is is there a lot of incentive to actually try and come up with new things me personally, like, because I am a content producer, because I naturally enjoy building decks, like, I'm always going to, at the very least, whenever a new set gets spoiled, and be like, you know, what are the implications of certain cards in Modern? But, you know, whenever I'm preparing for tournaments specifically, I'm probably going to be interested in just, you know, tuning my Death Shadow deck or whatever. Yeah, I mean, it also depends on how much time you have to, right? Yeah. Um, you know, with, like, GP Vegas coming up and having to prepare for two different formats, like, I'm going to spend a little bit less time on each. Yeah, I'm just going to play Thoughtseize in both formats. It'll be great. Oh, man, stupid reanimator. <laughs> I'm excited, man. I'm glad you're excited. That's that's cool. At the Reservation? I don't know. I don't know what that is. Ooh, I think uh, what percent on being on the, like, the, the Reservation, but he might be Asian. Oh, okay. What percentage of decks that you brew actually end up becoming real decks that you take to GP slash PTs? 
I kind of just want to answer this because it's like probably realistically like 0.02% or something like that. Oh man, it's so <laughs> low. It's so sad. <laughs> well, I mean, a lot of it is like the amount of decks that we actually brew, which is massive. Uh, that's part of the, the answer. And the other part of the answer is kind of what we were talking about previously, or I was talking about previously. It's like, you know, sometimes I have my baby that I'm working on, but realistically, if I want to give myself the best chance of winning the tournament, then like I need to work on the team deck or something that's more established. Yeah, because you very rarely end up building a deck that fits into like the paradigm of the format, right? Like say standard has five, five viable decks on average. That's that number is still pretty high. Like how many people could have created those decks like five, right? And how often is your name going to be one of those people? It, that number is very unlikely. And then maybe there's like 20 fringe decks or something. And yeah, it's just, it's very, very unlikely. Plus like major said, he builds like 50 decks every time a set comes out. Maybe that number is even low. Yeah, that's low. Okay. Well, <laughs> you you show me fifty decks. Yeah, sure. You you are privy to fifty decks per set release. <laughs> yeah, I did not get the platinum Empyrean package, so. <laughs> and and also uh, using the word brew here specifically, like you know, obviously there's tons and tons of decks that you know have our personal spins on them. Maybe just like one key card or something along those lines. Like obviously, like we didn't build Marvel, but you know, Chandra was an innovation that we had. I, I can I can only put my stamp on it. I can't actually claim it's mine a lot of the time. So best I can do. Sometimes I'll build a Death Shadow deck in Legacy and bring it to an Invitational and get crushed. But that's about it. AKA once. Yeah, once is all it took. Yeah. <laughs> Sean Illinich, how can you play best from behind, or how can you best play from behind? This is weird. So I think a lot of people actually play better from behind than playing from ahead. A lot of people, when they're when they're winning the game, have this tendency to kind of just, you know, I'm just going through the motions now because I'm winning, or, you know, I, I have such a huge advantage that I just need to close out the game as quickly as possible, or something along those lines. Like, I think that's a pretty common mindset. Yeah, well, they're, they're already signing the match slip in their head. Right. They're no longer focusing on the game. They're just like, oh, the game's over. This is just a formality. Yeah. So I think, like, a lot of people naturally play better from behind. But as far as, like, playing best, it's, it's really... Sometimes you're going to have to make plays when you're losing the game that might make you look stupid. I think a lot of people play to not lose rather than playing to win in those spots. Yeah, sometimes you just have to take the damage and hope they don't have a trick even though they have four cards in their hand. Or, you know, maybe you have to make the the double block because, you know, it's your best chance of winning the game even though, again, if they have the trick, you're just going to lose all your creatures and then you're going to lose the game on the spot. But sometimes you just have to make hard decisions that don't look good or feel good, but you still have to make them because it gives you the best chance of winning the game. Yeah. I, th- I think in both scenarios, like, you're ahead or you're behind, just, like, don't give up. Don't stop focusing. Like, there are several games that I can't recall at this moment, but several games where I thought I was just going to lose the entire time that I ended up winning. And certainly if you just kind of, like, mentally check out at that point, like, you just have no shot of winning those games. So, you know, what do you want to do? Basically just, like, flip over like the top 12 cards of each deck and then just be like I lose like or I win you know like you have to actually play the games at some point and that's that's the fun part winning those games that you thought you were absolutely gonna lose nothing leads to like yeah the best stories like th- that's that's your chance that's your chance for greatness so tighten up uh, another thing I want to add is like let's just say you're you're getting annihilated and you think you're gonna lose the game you know imagine the scenario where you win like what does it actually take like you know, if you draw perfect for four turns in a row and your opponent has nothing, can you win? And at that point, like, you know, just imagine that the impossible is going to happen and play as if it is. Yeah, 
I mean, if if it is literally they have four lands or you you need them to draw four lands in a row or whatever, you need to draw three rares in a row in perfect order. If that if that is what it takes, then play like it is. Yeah, give yourself a shot to actually win the game. Yeah, take your, you know, one millionth of a percent versus zero. Yeah, just just pray that Burn doesn't draw that 30 percenter. <laughs> we know it's 100 <laughs> percent. I tested the matchup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so we're running a, a little over an hour at this point, and I think that's all we're going to do for today. Uh, a lot of questions we didn't get to, but we definitely appreciate everyone who sent in a question, and yeah, I, I imagine we'll do this sometime in the future again, so... This is a lot of fun, different little change of pace, but for now, that's game. Good luck.